Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Health Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Keyes. Firstly, we want to thank everyone for their patience in the small delay between episodes. It's been a busy time here in Texas, and there's been a lot of adjustments as businesses and schools kind of open back up. So we appreciate your patience. Um, Today's topic is a special one. You know, almost everyone has been affected in some way by cancer, and many of us either know someone or have been directly affected by breast cancer. And that's why, according to the American Cancer Society, with the exception of skin cancer, it's the most prevalent cancer in women with about 13% chance in developing in one's lifetime. That's about one in eight chance. So, you know, and of course, October is a breast cancer awareness month. So today we're going to talk about several items within breast cancer, within the breast cancer topic. And we thought who better than to sit down with our very own medical oncologist and breast cancer specialist, Dr. Angela Cosio. After completing her bachelor's degree from Texas A&M University, Dr. Cosio attended medical school at University of Texas Medical Branch. She completed an internal medicine residency at Duke University and a hematology-slash-oncology fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Cosio worked at MD Anderson in the Woodlands for six years, where she treated all types of cancer while serving as the medical director. In 2016, she joined the faculty at the Breast Cancer Center of the Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center at Baylor College of Medicine. During her two years at Baylor, Dr. Cosio completed an MBA through Auburn University's Physician Executive MBA program. She's excited to return to CHI St. Luke's, the Woodlands Hospital, to help create the brand new Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center, which we'll talk about later, and bring important clinical research to the patients of this community. Dr. Cosio, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, we're, you know, I think this is a really important topic. You know, as, as I mentioned, it's, it's dear to a lot of people's hearts. And so thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge and bring some insight to the topic. So in keeping with the tradition of in kind of breaking the ice a little bit in the beginning, I'll start with a fun kind of lightning round set of questions. Are you ready? Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Wintergreen or peppermint? Peppermint. <sighs> Okay. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Perfect. You're doing great, by the way. The, the, the speed at which you're answering is perfect for a lightning <laughs> round. Uh, baseball or football? Baseball. Awesome. Okay. Winter or summer? Winter. Nice. Last one. Jokes or riddles? Jokes. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you for playing along. <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun to kind of have something in the beginning to just kind of break the ice. So let's dive in. So as I said in the intro, you know, whether a loved one or friend, cancer has probably had an effect on everyone in some way, but that, but that doesn't mean that it can't be prevented or treated. You know, what are some things that women and men uh, can kind of do on a regular basis to help prevent or catch the early stages of breast cancer? First, a healthy lifestyle helps prevent many types of cancer, including breast cancer. Um, Maintaining a normal body weight, exercise, good diet can help prevent breast cancer. Listening to your doctor about use of hormones when they're appropriate and when they're not appropriate can also help decrease your risk of developing breast cancer. And then screening is probably the most important Women need to catch their breast cancers early. Sometimes we even catch lesions that are not cancer yet that had we waited would have become a breast cancer requiring much more treatment than if we caught them early. So mammograms are recommended usually from the age of 40, but some women may be told that they need them sooner based on family history or other 
risk factors. I still recommend annual mammograms up until an age at which either there are other health problems that would make it difficult to do surgery or treat the breast cancer, or at an age at which a woman and her doctor decide that that's no longer a priority. But there's not a hard and fast age for stopping screening a breast cancer. Got it. Got it. And, and you know, I wanted to kind of piggyback on that. Let's say that it is caught early. What kind of advances in treatment have recently developed uh, to best treat breast cancer? So an early breast cancer almost always is going to be cured by surgery. Everything else is going to increase the probability that that cure happens. Radiation can sometimes be used after surgery. We've in the past several years realized that women over the age of 70 don't always need radiation. Um, So we're able to cure just as many women without as much treatment. Some women will require other treatments like hormone therapy, less likely chemotherapy in an early breast cancer. You know, you kind of talked a little bit about uh, the surgery there, and, and have there been any advances, advancements in that, and I guess in, in making it a little easier to recover, or I guess the, the rest of their prognosis? There's several exciting surgical advances, I think. Women have a risk of developing lymphedema or swelling in their arms after lymph nodes are removed for breast cancer, and we are now able to target specific lymph nodes in patients even when they do have cancer in one or a couple lymph nodes so that they don't need to have all of their lymph nodes removed and have less likelihood of that swelling. So that is a big advance because if you are doing that surgery and somebody is cured from their breast cancer but lives the rest of their life with lymphedema and you know that kind of difficulty, it's a huge advance for those patients not to have that risk. And then from the reconstructive side, there are so many reconstructive options for women. So if a woman does require a mastectomy for breast cancer, not only do we have implants, there are multiple types of reconstructions that use the woman's own body tissue to create new breast tissue. And we also are able to rearrange tissue in such a way that a woman could have a reduction along with her breast surgery and have symmetric breasts without losing both breasts. So there are so many, so many surgical options for our breast cancer patients. Yeah, that's great. I know um, you said something about the lymphedema. My, my mother-in-law, she is a breast cancer survivor, thank God. And I know she's talked before about going to elevation and having um, the potential of that and kind of being worried about that. So that's great to hear that there's been some advancements for that. That's cool. You know, uh, let's kind of wanted to talk, talk a little bit about mammograms. I know you touched on them already. You know, I think you kind of mentioned how often someone should be screened, but maybe we can reiterate that. Or also really how effective are the screens and, you know, maybe what age women should start. I think you said 40, but maybe you can kind of talk about uh, why maybe the age might be different for some other women. So women with a strong family history or who have had abnormal breast exams or prior breast surgeries, either cysts, aspirated, or other kinds of breast issues when they were younger can start at 35. And some doctors do like to get a baseline at the age of 35. In the majority of of women, I think it's a very reasonable thing to do, especially if there is a family history or any abnormalities on a breast exam. So women should be screened once a year, and they are very effective. 
if a woman has dense breasts, they may be told after a mammogram that they have dense breast tissue and should have ultrasound or other modalities performed. But as long as they follow the recommendations of the radiologist at the time of their screening, they are very effective screening tools. Oh, great. That's great. So, you know, I think that's uh, important uh, for all of the screens that we all have to do, but it's definitely important to hear that if it's as effective as it is, that it can really help prevent um, the spread and or, um, I guess, continued development of whatever cancer may be there. Um, okay, one other question I had about the mammograms were, are there any different types of mammograms, and can you explain maybe the difference between them? So there's a 3D mammogram, or also you may hear it as tomography. A 3D mammogram helps you see the breast tissue a little bit more clearly. The best description I've heard of this is a mammogram. All the women out there know exactly what I'm talking about. I do not. You squeeze the (laughs) tissue, make it flat, take a picture. So you're Mm. taking a 2D picture of a 3D object. So a 3D mammogram takes the picture in such a way that you can in the images the radiologist reads, kind of look around and through the tissue instead of just looking at it as a 2D object. So you're able to see things more clearly and catch things that may have been obscured otherwise. Is that pretty common for the for that one to be ordered, or is it more common for like the other one that you said where you put you know squish the tissue and take a 3D image or 2D image of a 3D object? When it first came out, it had to be asked for specifically. And sometimes there were higher copays. Um, it's becoming more and more common. If a woman has a breast complaint when they're coming in for their mammogram, it will be ordered as a diagnostic mammogram. And then they will have additional views and additional studies done as part of that mammogram. A routine screening, they may be asked whether they want 3D or not. Right. So I guess it's kind of to help uh, with any potential false, po- false positives, things right. like that. Okay, very cool. Like with most topics on this podcast, and I think, you know, you kind of, you've already touched on it, but genetics seem to play a significant role, I'm sure. You know, how much do genetics have an impact in breast cancer development? That's a really good question because a lot of us think of genetic breast cancers like Angelina Jolie having the breast cancer gene. So yes, there are genes that increase the risk of breast cancer. We can test for them. We can tell a woman, yes, you have it. No, you don't. Here's what your risk is if you have it and give some good information to our patients. So those are genetic breast cancers. But there's also hereditary or familial breast cancers. That family that you hear six of the 10 women in that family across three generations have had breast cancer, but they've all had the genetic test done and none of the genes show up in any of those women you know there's something about that family, but we don't have a gene. So those are the familial breast cancers. So we do counseling to those patients. We do consider them higher risk than an average patient, but we can't nail down a gene. So is it that there's some gene we haven't discovered yet? Could be. Or is there something else in that family? Is it something environmental or, you know, dietary, or is it another risk factor that's just related to breast cancer, but not a gene. Right. We don't know, but we do look at both of those risk factors. Right. Yeah. Kind of continuing about the the testing, how do you decide which ones get tested for the gene or how do you pick, I guess, which patient um, needs that kind of test? 
So there are guidelines that will tell us which patients should be tested for those genes. And those guidelines change. I feel like every six (laughs) months to a year, there's some kind of change to that guideline. So I think it's important for women, especially women with any family history, to bring it up themselves with their doctor and their annual exam and ask, do I need to be tested? Because if you saw your doctor three years ago and had that conversation, it's possible things could have changed. So it's important for women to speak up for themselves and ask that question regularly. In general, if a woman herself has had breast cancer, then their oncologist has probably either tested them or gone through that exercise with them. We are testing almost all newly diagnosed patients for the BRCA genes or for the genetic breast cancers. But if you have two to three relatives that are first or second degree, so sisters and moms, then it's really important to have that conversation because you may meet criteria for having that kind of testing done. If there is a male breast cancer in the family, that also increases the risk. And it can get kind of complicated because other cancers play into that calculation as far as who should be tested. So did somebody have a prostate cancer or a pancreatic cancer or melanoma? So once you get into a complicated family history, we can refer patients to genetic counselors who will spend a long time mapping out a family tree with all of the cancers that that family has had and make recommendations for not just testing that person who's sitting in front of them, but okay, we might need to test. Right. Uncle Bob or somebody else. Right. Is it invasive or is it like a blood test? It's a blood test. Sometimes it can be done as a um, saliva test. Oh, okay, cool. Very good. So non-invasive at all for for a lot of people. Okay. So we talked a little earlier about this, you know, Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center that we have here in the Woodlands. And I know that you were a, a big part of that. So can you give us a bit of the story of its growth over the last few years? It's been a very exciting few years. About three or four years ago, when I joined the breast center at the Danielle Duncan Cancer Center in Houston, we started talking about our strategy for cancer care here at the Woodlands Hospital as well. And our entire goal was to have Danielle Duncan Cancer Center quality and physicians and staff located here and be a team, not two separate centers but a true team to work on research together, to share patient care, to offer all of the services that patients would have in the medical center in the Woodlands as well. It's kind of like you said, a team. I mean, you got the whole Houston and North Houston market Mm -hmm. working together to help service any of the uh, patients that we have around here, not just, well, those people down there work with the South Horn, you know, Houston area, and we work with the North. You have the opportunity to service people all across the, the whole area. So that's really cool. And we would like to be able to have a seamless transition for patients if they need a specialized surgery that really needs to happen in the medical center. We partner with those surgeons and they can have almost everything done here that they need to. If they need chemotherapy, it can be done here. They can go down for their surgery and come right back. And we all work together as a team. We've been able to use technology to share tumor board meetings with the teams downtown so that we can all look at a patient's 
CT scans and lab results and pathology together and make a treatment plan across Houston um, for any given patient. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, you know, you mentioned research a little bit. Uh, what kind of research projects are you working on now, uh, your team, or I- any of the people that you um, that you partner with? So we have been meeting with the Danielle Duncan research leaders and setting up the infrastructure so that we can participate in multiple kinds of research here in the woodlands. We have, from the day we opened, been following the research protocols at Danielle Duncan and having patients go downtown when needed for research. But as we continue in this direction, we'll be able to offer more and more of those things here so the patients don't have to go downtown. One of the first things we'll be able to do is tissue banking. So any patient who has a cancer surgery, once we're finished in the pathology lab doing everything we need for that patient's cancer care, if there's any tissue left and the patient chooses to donate it, it can go for research purposes to the medical center. So we're we're going to be able to do that. We also are working on the infrastructure for opening clinical trials here. So that will include having staff for research coordination, having research pharmacy, working on our IRB, things like that, that will allow us to open not just clinical trials from Danl Duncan, but any clinical trial that we think would benefit our patients here in the woodlands. Yeah, I know you know you mentioned IRB and some of those other things, the pharmacy, getting those together uh, for any research. I, I remember when I had to do my master's, it's like all I was just doing was my simple thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for clinical research like that, it's a lot of work. It's a lot to put together, and it's um, but it's so beneficial. It's so cool to be on the cutting edge for a lot of that stuff. So it is, and the most exciting part about this is that. It has had complete support from the leadership at this hospital in the Woodlands and the Daniel Duncan Cancer Cancer Center in Houston. And it has been a really amazing team to be part of. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so if you had, you know, one word of advice for those who either know someone who is fighting breast cancer or is actually fighting cancer themselves, what would it be? I think the best advice that I could give someone would be to tell them to first relax because the more stressed you are, the harder it's going to be. And the second is to find a team you trust and put it in their hands. If you are not comfortable with what's happening in your care, then you need to say stop and get comfortable and then you're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that. I think the comfortability between all of the physicians, the doctors that, like you said, that team that you have is really important to know uh, what the game plan is and, and what's going to be happening moving forward. So you, you're aware of every step. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I like to finish the episode the way we started it with some fun. And in keeping with the first question's theme, I'm going to go ahead because you chose joke. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell a joke and see if it warrants a laugh. <clears throat> and since it's Halloween, you know, right around the corner, I figured that I would go with a Halloween joke. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. Why do cemeteries have fences around them? I don't know. Because people are dying to get in. Ha ha ha. I know. It's, it's kind of dark. <laughs> but I saw that the other day and I thought that was kind of funny. So I'm totally telling that to my six year old today. <laughs> right. I should try to see that. I'll say that to my four year old. They'll probably just stare at me. <laughs> um, well, you know, maybe we'll tell the riddle one too. 
The person who built it sold it. The person who bought it never used it. The person who used it never saw it. What is it? You want those again? Yes. Okay. The person who bought it never used it. The person who used it never saw it. And the person who built it sold it. I have no earthly idea. A coffin. well well yes so thank you dr cosio for taking the time to do this today you know we really appreciate everything that you guys do here um the whole team all the way down in in houston as well before we go is there anything else you'd like to say since we're trying to bring some awareness to breast cancer month if you haven't had your mammogram yet please go do it. (laughs) Yes, definitely. And uh, well, thank you listeners also for tuning in and stay tuned and don't forget to hit subscribe and um, we will see you next time. All right. Thanks. Bye.